So I got this really cool swag. So if you're listening, you really can't see my my new swag. Got this Drive Smart uh, sweatshirt from my favorite race car driver, Kyle Weatherman. And in fact, Rosemary, if you go to the DriveSmartWarranty.com website, you will see the Uptime logo on the race car that we uh, were on this past year in Texas. So this is going to be an exciting year for Kyle Weatherman and for Uptime and Drive Smart Warranty. Uh, because we're expecting great things this season. So, Rosemary, you want me to? I could, I can get one of these cool sweatshirts and send it your way if you'd like. Yeah, I'll never, never turn down <laughs> freebie like that. The only problem with this sweatshirt, it's not really a problem, is it has a Chevy logo, and I've never driven a Chevy. Now I feel obligated <laughs> that I have to drive a Chevy. Joel, you, are you driving a Chevy right now? GMC, but I mean, same, same thing, same, same pot of money. There's someone on the uptime crew because Phil is driving a scooter. Uh, a very complicated scooter, nonetheless. I used to I used to drive a truck. Thank you very much. Had a nice Dodge for eleven years, so I was part of the family. We've got a Subaru. It's a very Australian car. There you go. We're expecting great things this year from uh, Kyle Weatherman and the DGM crew, and from Dry Smart Warranty. So, check it out. DrySmartWarranty.com. European energy companies Equinor and BP have terminated their agreement to sell power from the proposed Empire Wind 2 offshore wind farm to New York State. Uh, the company cited rising inflation, higher borrowing costs, and supply chain issues as the reasons for canceling the contract. Uh, as you know, Phil, you know, New York recently launched a new offshore wind procurement to allow developers to exit these old contracts and to reoffer projects at higher prices. And that's supposed to conclude sometime in February. However, in this particular case, BP and Equinor also canceled the substation bill. So there seems like they're committed a little further down the line than just saying, hey, we're going to rebid. They've actually stopped production on a vital component of that wind farm. This is in, uh, in, in light of, obviously, Orsted pulling out of the two projects in New Jersey. So there seems to be a trend going on here. Uh, Equinor also had the problem, uh, you know, you and I were corresponding via, uh, Slack or whatever we was the other day. And I, I commented that Equinor has been pressured by the state quite a couple of times for a variety of different reasons. One more recently is the New York state canceled the onshoring of one of their cables. Uh, and which was sort of a last minute dig at, at Equinor, I felt, uh, does this all seem to align like Equinor is getting the cold shoulder from New York State and will they go back and try to rebid this? I believe they will. So first of all, this this probably wasn't surprising that they were going to pull out after, you know, Empire Wind 1, Phase 1, and, um, you know, some of these other project cancellations, uh, or at least PPA, we shouldn't say project cancellation, PPA cancellations or off-take contract cancellations, um, because... And and actually, that's an important distinction because they still own the development rights. They're still in the queue. They're still in the BOEM queue for, you know, environmental permitting, et cetera, et cetera. And so I I do think that they will end up rebidding. I think the reason that they canceled the substation and the rock bag contracts with, because uh, they also canceled the one with, uh, with Great Lakes Dredging, um, that was 
I think stemmed from the fact that they were there are potentially obligations in those sub supplier contracts that you know once they had like you know certain permits and reviews and everything in place even if they hadn't taken FID on the project like they they probably had to to pull out um of of those but the bottom line is yes i think they're going to try to rebid if they're going to be allowed to it sounds like they are and we'll see in february what comes of it because again keep in mind that in new york they only have a handful of projects that they could even build so it's like are is new york going to really like bypass bp nequinor's Empire Wind, you know, one and two and say you can't rebid those and then go for another project that's out there in the New York bite, uh, which is going to have a later, um, you know, uh, commissioning date anyway, like that. So it, I, I think they just need to, I don't know, everybody may, maybe needs a bit of a, a kumbaya moment or something, or I don't, I don't know what the problem is. It's it's got to be an election year thing. I'm 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 going to put it down to that. Phil, I'm going to agree with you on that one. And simply, look, I'm thinking about the substation, right? The substation is the big one because that's the most expensive piece for that offshore wind farm. And there's a lot of steel that goes into that thing. So I know that um, I think it was South Forks uh, substation was built in the Texas. Was it built in the Gulf Coast and then floated around? Right. So. So build, building that substation takes a lot of time and a lot of effort and a lot of money, right? So there has to be some kind of contractual thing like it's going to slow down. And you're looking at exactly like I say, or like you said, Phil, uh, agreeing with you here, the volatility of November election cycle coming up because you can't build a offshore substation in a month, right? Like that thing's going to be under under uh, the, in the build process for quite a while before it's able to be floated out and, and put in place. So there's just too much volatility surrounding these things. Um, the other thing I w- want to touch on here is off air, we had a little bit of a conversation uh, with Rosemary about the idea around renewables and the East Coast. So we know there's this massive load center there, right? We have a couple hundred miles of uh, metropolitan uh, power <laughs> sucking for for sure, but there isn't it's not that easy to build any kind of renewables around there, right? So there's, there's not a lot of space. It's gets, we get snow in the winter. Solar is not as good of an option. There's a little bit of onshore wind in, you know, upstate New York and, and Pennsylvania, a little bit up in Maine, but for the most part, the wind resource doesn't, isn't awesome on shore there. So if, uh, you know, Nyserda or any of these other power grids up there or power uh, controllers in the Northeast want to have, renewables in the in their in their power mix offshore wind is really the only option they've got right now is technologically feasible so uh, someone's got to figure out how to get these things in the water rosemary what's their trade-off here if they don't do these offshore projects what does it look like to do solar and battery or onshore wind what are the trade-offs yeah well i'm i'm assuming based on what i know of the climate up there that their peak uh, load is going to be in winter with heating. It's probably gas, largely gas now, but um, you know, assuming in the future as we transition to zero emissions, that that's going to become electrified, and so they're going to have their yeah their biggest loads, um, the biggest demand. I mean, sorry, in the um, in the winter time. So that's also obviously when solar power is at its uh, smallest contribution because you know days are short and the sun angle is poor in the summertime. So if you want to get rid of wind, 
then you're going to end up with just immense amounts of um, seasonal storage needed. So not just, you know, like usually when you have grids that have a lot of solar power in them, it's places that are closer to the equator. They don't have such big seasonal differences. You need batteries to, um, you know, shift the um, solar power from the middle of the day to the evening and overnight. Um, that's a few hours. That's doable. But if you want to get through weeks and weeks of short, cloudy days, I mean months, then you need lots of seasonal energy storage, which is not something that's economic at the moment unless you've got, you know, just like really great hydro resources. So, it, yeah, I mean, you don't, there's a whole list of um, different ways that you could decarbonize the energy system in that area of the world. Um, and if you, they seem to just kind of be going through the list and just being like, nope, don't want that, don't want that, don't want that. So, yeah, they're not really taking the steps they would need to actually get offshore um, wind. You know, they're talking a lot about it and um, talking tough, but it, at the end of the day, you have to have an arrangement that's going to be acceptable to both sides. You can't just demand, um, you know, that projects go ahead that are going to lose companies' money. Obviously, that's not <laughs> not going to work out. Um, you could have onshore wind, you know, from the windier parts of the US and less populated parts of the US, but that's quite far away. So you would need to build a lot of transmission to bring it across. And um, that's really similar to what China's doing. They also have the problem where their really windy areas are not at all close to where their populations are. It's a whole heap of ultra high voltage DC and um, the US people don't seem to want that. You're having huge problems building in transmission um, I even heard of, uh, you know, places where they wanted to bury the transmission so that you wouldn't see it. It costs a, a lot more to bury it, but, you know, it's technologically feasible and visually lower impact. People didn't want that either. And so um, it's it's fine. You don't have to have that. But then, you know, like what's next on your list? And uh, you end up when you cross off too many options from your list, you just end up with a you're going to end up with a expensive and unreliable and probably carbon dioxide emitting energy system. It's, um, you know, it's just the reality that um, decisions have consequences. Technologies have undesirable attributes as well as desirable ones. It's true for everything. Um, and yeah, I, I do find it a little bit childish to just say nut, 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 and not actually, you know, just take a deep breath and say, okay, these are the compromises we've got to make to get a reliable energy system. Uh, yeah, it's not the way to make a good energy system. Rosemary, you believe that New York has to go through with these projects. Does Equinor and BP think the same? Like it's just, 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 just a waiting game from here on out? Oh, no, I don't think so. I think that they might be serious. Um, uh, it's, you know, it's political, right? So that means that people are really focused about the next election and the next election is going to come before there's any consequence for not having built these projects. You know, the, um, the consequences are going to be faced in 2030 and beyond. So as if any politician today cares about that. Um, the you know, the good smart thing to do if you're a politician that wants to get elected in the the next cycle is to yeah be real tough. Oh, we're not going to get walked all over by these companies. They're trying to screw you because um, it does sound like that. If you only got twenty or thirty seconds to devote to understanding this situation, you you hear well we had a contract to supply wind energy at this price, and then now they've gone and changed the price that they want and do they think that we're stupid and that you know we can um we're just going to roll over for whatever these big wind companies want to do no way you know we've got tough politicians that are standing up for us it, like obviously that's the um 
that's the story that's going to make it to your average your average voter so you know what you need is is yeah what you need is politicians that are, are grown-ups and are actually trying to end up with a clean energy system in 2030 and beyond and that means that means, yeah, taking their their big boy or big girl pants to the negotiation table and and saying, yes, okay, um, I can see that it's it's true that things have changed since we wrote these contracts. And I mean, it's obvious that they can't deliver these these projects. It is also obvious that you can't just say, oh, just you know, like blank checkbook, build the project, and then tell us how much you want us to pay you. I mean, that's not right either. So. Yeah, like it's a real negotiation where um, both sides get involved. But I think I've said this before, like the negotiation style matters here. This is not just a, you know, used car type arrangement where you can, you know, twist someone's arm, um, sell them a lemon for way more than it's worth. And, you know, you've won the negotiation because you need this relationship to continue longer term. All I see is just tough talk and not caring about um, how <laughs> how it turns out. So, you know, like I, I think my, if I look in my crystal ball, I see New York having energy problems in, um, you know, five, 10 years time. I, that, that's what I see. I don't see any grownups that want to actually, you know, solve solve problems in a, a realistic way. It's 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 amazing to watch the contrast between trying to create jobs at the same time making it very difficult to get those jobs in place because you can't have it both ways. They 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 need to make a decision pretty soon, right? Uh, otherwise, I think some of these developers are going to walk away for years until governments change or politics radically change the United States. It's just I don't think they can afford to lose money on them. And Rosemary, you're right. It's a really tough choice for New York. I think that one thing that's on New York's side is that New York is not the only place that is having these same kind of of fights. Um, I think everyone around the world, you know, that claims to want a big wind industry in the future is being really unrealistic about what it's going to take to get it. Um, You know, that we've been so used to watching, I guess, through solar power in particular, you, you watch prices come down and down and down and just kind of think, well, okay, this is a mature industry if it doesn't need any more support. But if you want to massively expand an industry, and I mean, offshore wind is is brand new in, in the US, there's all sorts of like building blocks that you have to put in place to make sure that, you know, everything is there for the industry to roll out and for yeah, for companies to feel confident to have, um, you know, to open new factories that they would need to trust that people are serious about, um, you know, the volumes of when they're going to be installed to get all the ships that you need to get port (laughs) upgrades that you need. And when I look at New York and, I mean, maybe to a lesser extent the UK, though I do think that they uh, have maybe taken a bit more responsibility for what happened and changed going forward to something that might work. Like you'd have to look at New York and say, I, like, as if you're going to, as a, a private company, as if you're going to put the you know millions or billions on the line that you would need to to have a new offshore wind turbine manufacturing facility, um, you would never have the trust um, that those orders were going to eventuate. I think someone making the call to fund their own manufacturing facilities based on offshore wind in the US would be crazy to, you know, think that they were going to make that money back because I don't see the evidence that people are serious about this industry in the US. 
Hey, Uptime listeners. We know how difficult it is to keep track of the wind industry. That's why we read PES Wind Magazine. PES Wind doesn't summarize the news. It digs into the tough issues. And PES Wind is written by the experts, so you can get the in-depth info you need. Check out the wind industry's leading trade publication, PES Wind at PESWind.com. So that rolls into the next discussion, which is the Port of Albany. So right north of New York City, about 100 miles or so along the Hudson River, New York State is planning on putting two ports in, the Port of Albany and the Port of Coinman, and they're expecting to create 3,200 jobs and $1 billion in annual industry spending. That's a lot. Right. And I, I think Rosemary's point really sticks here. Because if they're not serious, they're going to get, have a hard time getting these sites developed. Well, a study commissioned by uh, the economic groups involved in this uh, took a look at what it would mean locally to Albany, New York, and the surrounding areas. Coinman Port's going to build the cells and blades, and uh, the Albany site is going to make towers. So they got everything there. Uh, 10,000 construction jobs are projected. Uh, the tax revenue, and everybody sit down because these numbers are huge. The port of Coimans is expected to generate $232 million in tax revenue through just its first year of operating its manufacturing facilities, including $12 million each for Albany County and the adjacent school district county. So the, the $12 million going to the local schools just from the first year of operation. That's a lot of money. Uh, the Beacon Island site, which will build the towers, uh, generate $163 million in taxes through construction and first-year operations and pouring in about 9 or $10 million into the local school districts. That is a ton of money if that does happen. So you're talking about roughly almost $400 million in tax revenue in the first year of operation. So it's all through the construction phase and operation. Those are huge numbers. Someone's got to pay for that, right? So if someone's writing the check for those taxes, who is that going to be? And is it going to be GELM uh, and the tower developer? Are they going to be Marmon, right? So is that something they expect to pay? Because, man, putting that into your planning, that's a lot. Phil, am I crazy? That's a lot of money. It is, but there's, I mean, they've got a deal because they basically, they're going to be able to get some state level support. They're also theoretically going to be able to apply for either the 48C manufacturing tax credit, even though there was only about 10 billion that was allocated for that. There's still some money there. um, And that, that the 48C uh, IRS rule basically will cover up to about 30% of, um, you know, the cost of your factory. Uh, again, subject to the the ten billion dollar limit, there are a bunch of other you know because energy storage factories are all trying to apply for that money too, um, you know, or have done already. So I don't actually know. I we should look into this. Uh, I don't actually know off the top of my head how much of that ten billion is left. Um, I think it's probably at least around half. So they've got you know some some money there to be able to cover um, some of these expenses that would otherwise be incurred as far as the capex goes the taxes and the tax revenue that goes to the state um you know is is something that the 
um, the supply chain companies are necessarily going to have to commit to. Um, but they usually only do that in exchange for, number one, you know, tax breaks on job creation, and two, um, some other kind of incentive for, or some kind of guarantee of a certain amount of, of order book, basically. Because uh, as Rosemary was just saying, you can't actually set up a factory and spend, you know, $500 million to, to do a tower factory when it's going to end up that, oh, you're going to make like a hundred towers and then it's going to sit there for five years. Like you, you need certainty to be able to spend that kind of money. Phil, Phil, correct me if I'm wrong here, but 48C is merit-based, isn't it? It is. Like it's a, like it's an application process and everything. Like it's not just like, hey, you get it because you get it. You, it's like certain projects get it, right? And so I would think that this one, these projects would go to the top of the queue, wouldn't they? Potentially, but again, I don't know how they're doing the queue because there are other projects for solar manufacturing. I mean, there's a couple of companies that are talking about building like a billion dollar solar uh, production facility in the United States right now. Uh, now, I don't know that they've gotten the commitment from the government to the federal government anyway to be able to do you know, that and get the 48C manufacturing tax credit. I don't know if it's first come, first serve. I don't actually know what the, uh, again, we'll dig into this. The other aspect of this, though, is we now have another mechanism, which is the 45, the proposed 45X manufacturing tax credits that comes from the IRA bill. That's going to pay out uh, for, for onshore wind. Um, it pays out something like $120,000 per megawatt. Um, for fixed uh, bottom offshore, it's $140,000 per megawatt. And for floating offshore, it's $160,000 per megawatt um, for whatever factory you're, you're setting up. If it's, you know, building towers, blades, nacelles, et cetera. So all these, you know, the, the Port of Coyman and the uh, Port of Albany, they're both theoretically covered under that as well. Um, so that offers them a, a certain amount of incentive as well. Uh, if they don't get the the 48C manufacturing tax credit, they can always um, do their their annual application for um, you know any project related components that they built uh, for for the 45X. I think it's a kind of a crazy concept this whole thing because if if you if you zoom out a bit, you go there's there's a general fund of tax money and that comes from income taxes, whatever, federal sales tax, all these different things that go into that general fund. And now you have different places in the country fighting for that tax money. So basically, this is grabbing federal tax money that comes from all over the country and then concentrating it into one town by giving it back via these tax credits. So I mean, and that's how the mechanisms work, right? That's how this all taxes and subsidies and everything all works. But when you look at it that way, it's kind of crazy to think that all the money gets collected from the whole nation and then the people like the Port of Albany, you have you have certain congressmen, senators, congresswomen, all trying to get that money for their their constituents. And and there's it looks like if this is all to go the way it's written out, man, four hundred million odd dollars to that one little area is a lot of tax money. So when they build this tower factory up in Albany, the first thing that comes to mind is how are they going to fill this thing with equipment, like. That's specialized equipment, and I don't know anybody in the United States that makes that equipment. I was reading the PES Win magazine over the weekend, and there's an article from Hana, which is a German company that does a lot of tower 
uh, tooling and all the fixtures and to weld these tower sections together, these monopiles together, and all the complicated uh, roller system to move these pieces around. It sounds like a lot of the equipment that's going to go inside the factories, like from Hana, who has looks like has a tremendous amount of expertise. Uh, that that technology is going to come from outside the United States. Am I am I right about that? Yeah, I mean, what can't be missed here is that these are not like uh, two by four factories or pencil factories or anything like that, right? These are very complicated, very customized, heavy industrial factories. So if we're making blades, you need all the fixtures and the moving equipment, and you have to make molds and all these different stuff. And there's custom robotics that go into that. If you're making towers, the same thing. You're like like Hana, like you said, they have the capabilities of like 15 meter diameter monopiles and the the jigs. The jigs and tooling that's made specially for those to be able to weld them together because you can't you can't weld the t- two tower sections and have them off by a half a degree right because you do that a couple of times and you're gonna you lose all the structural integrity of everything so there's you know there's a lot of moving equipment I know Hanna's got four thousand ton roller beds beds to move some of this steel around that's that's insane yeah and you think about like the I know some of uh, my offshore friends they they they're um, these they're like metrology surveyors, right? So really highly accurate. They're licking their chops at the idea of some of these port scheme built because that's all uh, dimensional control surveying. When they when they put those those big overhead gantry cranes and stuff in these factories, if you've been in a factory, you've seen it. You're like, oh, that's cool. But those things are aligned to millimeters from end to end to be able to move those heavy weights. And I mean, all, every single one of these factories is going to have some of those big gantry cranes in it. So when you say, oh, we're going to create possibly 10,000 jobs. Man, you're creating jobs all over the all over the value chain there from the people pouring concrete and running uh dozers to HVAC and electrical and like the the um you know the the dimensional control surveyors and the people in Germany at Hana over there and with their um customized equipment. I mean, it's it will you will have the supply chain and the the tree of people involved in these projects is freaking massive. This goes back to Rosemary's point if they're not going to have really firm commitments to build the turbines, it's going to be hard for companies like HANA to spool up because just looking at the technology they have, it's not going to be built in a weekend. It's going to take time for them to build the proper equipment to, to get that tower factory up and running, right? But they're, but it's all customized equipment, right? So it's all it's it's nothing trivial, and that's why it's, it's so, so difficult to mobilize. And And to be honest with you, if these things get done and they're ready to roll in a year from date, that's impressive. Right now, even for onshore wind in the United States, for any turbine that's about four megawatts or above, we are importing a lot of the castings and the hubs and things like that that can't actually be built here because we don't have the manufacturing tooling. All that stuff's being brought in from Germany, from, you know, other, maybe China in some cases, um, you know, Malaysia, Indonesia, etc., where it's cheaper because of the labor rates, et cetera, et cetera, the, to, to actually buy and, and implement that equipment. So the fact that these offshore factories are going to have this equipment available to be able to do these bigger castings and these bigger you know, tower sections and, and things like that, it could actually help out the onshore sector, especially if offshore has all these fits and starts and and they're looking for like, well, oh, what else could we do with this factory that's going to be sitting there? Help out the onshore sector that wants to be able to put up the six megawatt turbines, but we don't have the ability to source a lot of the components domestically. We've got to get everything from Europe. 
Um, you know, so this this could be very important for, for us. Lightning is an act of God, but lightning damage is not. Actually, it's very predictable and very preventable. Strike Tape is a lightning protection system upgrade for wind turbines made by WeatherGuard. It dramatically improves the effectiveness of the factory LPS so you can stop worrying about lightning damage. Visit weatherguardwind.com to learn more, read a case study, and schedule a call today. Rosemary, you've been to Germany, right? That's where she goes for raves. Oh, yeah, that's right. The techno train. I forgot about that. I have never been on the techno train, but uh, <laughs> I, have, I have been to Berlin. <laughs> have you been to Fraunhofer? Uh, no, but I am um, thinking about trying to wrangle a visit next time I'm there. Uh, but mostly I want to see the battery battery manufacturing stuff that they're doing. Well, when we go to Hamburg, because we're all going to Hamburg for the big wind trade show, right? It's in September, October, sometime when it's uh, really beautiful in Germany. Uh, hopefully get to go to visit Fraunhofer. But, you know, have you seen this new thing that they developed, this uh, variable glue applicator? There's an interesting video online the other day, which is showing, it, you know, how the glue go. Well, you know, I mean, you put the adhesive in bond lines to glue the shells together to make a blade, the that adhesive is kind of laid down. And I, I assume there's like templates to put this adhesive down and the thicknesses are kind of generally controlled. But Fraunhofer's developed this like applicator that changes the shape of the glue application, the bond line application, and controls the thickness. So this cuts down the, the variability there. And I, I thought that had already been done, but I guess not. But the Fraunhofer has uh, got this variable glue applicator. And it looks like a little bit of a robot. But they're saying it's going to save between 10 and 20% in adhesive per blade. That sounds like a lot. 20% in adhesive is a, is a lot of, one, money, two, weight, right? I, I mean, I would definitely uh, believe that there is that much excess glue in a blade that that, that could be saved. But I would be skeptical that they have gotten there yet. Have you seen um, whether they've rolled it out in real blade factories or if it's just in their kind of like small scale thing? It's yeah, small scale from what we could tell, but it, it looks like it has application. Like in their internal projects, like they're working on the Relia blade and a few others, that's where they've been basically testing it. That's their, I mean, cause it's controllable and it's internal, right? Okay. So, I mean, it's, um, yeah, it's definitely a big, there's a lot of glue waste in a blade and it is heavy and it is a critical component. So like a critical part of the, the blade structure. Um, so definitely think that they're on the money with this being a problem that's worth tackling. Um, the way that blades, when they're made in two pieces and then closed like a clamshell, the way that they that is usually done is that yeah, so you've got your two blade halves, you've got to put a bunch of glue on, you know, the leading and the trailing edge and then close that. And then you also got one or more shear webs in the middle and that needs to have glue on the bottom and the top of those webs that will then join them to the shells. And the tricky part is um, the tolerances that are involved and also the, the timing of it. So it's actually really cool. It's one of the, my funnest parts of the blade manufacturing to go and watch because it's like this choreographed dance. You've got probably, you know, like a dozen or maybe dozens of um, manufacturer, manufacturing workers that are there um, all doing the exact right thing at the exact right time because the glue has a certain uh, amount of um, time before it's going to start curing, right? So 
you have to get everything done um, as you're closing the blade uh, before the glue starts to set. Otherwise, you have to um, scrape it off and grind it off and start again the next day. Um, so, yeah, it's obviously really important to get it all done. But the challenge is that these these webs go in, so um, it's just kind of it, it's just sitting there. When the blade is completely closed, it's all a nice rigid structure. But until then, a shear web is like um, you know it's pretty pretty thin. Like maybe it's only I don't know um, fifty or hundred mils thick, and it's tens of meters long, right? And so they're kind of like floppy, like a sheet of lasagna or something. You, you know, like they they wobble a bit. And so um, you put glue on the, the bottom shell and then you try and balance this sheet of lasagna um, on top of it. And then you put glue on the top of that and then close the whole thing up. But the thing is, because it's not totally rigid and there aren't a lot of like braces, anything that you put in the blade to hold it in place is, is there once the blade is closed as well, right? It's there forever. So you have a lot of tolerance. So the reason why I'm explaining all this is that your glue, it, you can't ever put in just the precise amount of glue that you need because your shear web might move um, side to side like 50 mils or, or more. And so you need to have glue over the, the entire space that it could possibly end up. And so you're necessarily going to end up with glue waste because of that. So I think, uh, I, I, like, no doubt this Fraunhofer glue shoe is going to help. And, um, you know, the way that it is at the moment, you've got, yeah, these glue shoes and somebody just, just there, like, you know, squeezing like a caulking gun, basically a huge caulking gun with a little shoe at the end to make the width of the, the glue um, consistent. And they just walk, they literally walk up and down along the blade and put a line of glue in and there'll be, you know, half a dozen people doing this at various places on the blade at once. Um, and so one of the problems is, yeah, making sure that they put the glue where it's supposed to go and you can easily, you know, wobble a bit and, um, you know, go off center. And it sounds like the Fraunhofer, um, little device is going to definitely help with that issue. Um, but I think to really like capture the full potential of minimizing glue waste, you would need to do, I would need to see something that's going to firm up those tolerances of how everything ends up when it closes. And um, I didn't see that in, in their method. They may well be working on that in parallel, but um, I just don't think that you'll get that, you know, like 10% or whatever it is that they're claiming without taking care of that really big um, source of, of glue waste. I got a question for you, Rosemary. It just seems kind of silly to me that they wouldn't have some really well-made braces or like jigs that go on the inside of like the bottom section of blade to hold the shear web or shear webs in place so they don't move like like a metal bracket that goes in there as they close it up. Like it just seems they got to have something like that, right? Yeah, but then it's there. How are you going to get that brace out again? There are some braces and, and stuff like that um, that stay in there. And there are some towards the root that you can take out uh, afterwards because you can climb in and, you know, unscrew it and, and take it out. So it's not like there's nothing. Um, but, yeah, basically they they don't want to add mass by putting in supporting structures that are going to stay there. Um, yeah. So they're, they're, people, that's one of the biggest things that people are surprised at. You, you know, we would often, I was working for LM Windpower, which makes only blades. Um, and we would work with, obviously, with engineers from the rest of the wind turbine of our customers. 
our clients. Um, and, you know, they're probably used to working with metals. And so, um, you know, somebody who's used to working with metals will be used to millimeter tolerances or less in many cases. They come to a wind turbine blade factory and routinely have their minds blown and are absolutely shocked. It seems like a real agricultural approach, like, wow, you guys are back in the dark ages of, you know, like um, your hand making this. Yeah. What is this like 1800 and you're, you know, just figuring out how to how to, you know, make a manufactured product at all. But the that's just a part of composites. And it's it it isn't like worse engineering or easier engineering. It's actually really hard to work with a product that has these big tolerances in it because you still need to get your outcome still needs to be a. Uh, um, yeah, a product, a manufactured product that is just as reliable and consistent in everything that matters, you know, the strength and durability and, uh, you know, presence or not presence of defects all needs to be the same as any other part of a wind turbine. Um, but you have to do it with all these huge tolerances. So it's just a different layer of, um, yeah, of, you know, design drivers that, that you face when you're working with composite materials. I mean, you can get around that a bit like in the auto manufacturers, they don't have these massive tolerances, but they're using prepregs and autoclaves and robots. And, you know, if you wanted to spend 10 times as much to buy a wind turbine blade, then we could probably have that in the industry too. Although, I mean, it would be something to see like a hundred meter long autoclave, but um, yeah, it's just, you know, if you, this has been really the process has been refined to make them cheap. I think automation is gradually happening. And this Fraunhofer um, glue shoe is an example of, you know, just incremental little bits of automation. I'm sure that one day a wind turbine blade will be fully made by robots. Uh, but yeah, for now, the cheapest way to make a wind turbine blade is very, very manual. Did you just invent a word, glue shoe? Or is that something that already existed in the lexicon of wind turbines? I'm pretty sure it's in that Brown Hopper article as well. It's um yeah, you know a caulking gun, right? How and or like, even those epo epoxy syringes, they kind of, you know, they mix as they as they go. Um it's just like you imagine that really scaled up and you've probably got someone who's wearing a, a backpack or they're connected by a hose to a big vat of glue that's getting mixed as they lay it out and then it you uh, the glue shoe goes on the end of the little tube. Uh, it's like a, I don't know, a little rectangular cross-section thing with the glue coming out so that it, it just squirts out to make a nice, like, extruded kind of rectangular kind of um, tube of, you know, like imagine a, like laying out a chocolate a chocolate bar or, I, I don't know, some, something like that. Food analogies today. In this, it's lasagna and chocolate bars. I'm so hungry now. If you just use the caulking gun, then you would get like a really highly variable kind of bond line um, or, yeah, like glue application. And it also, if it's round, then it's not going to be touching all, all the way along because obviously glue can only stick things together if it's touching both surfaces. So you want it to be nice and smooth and flat. So glue shoe is just a bit of plastic that, that does that. Um, very, very simple and yeah, no, I didn't didn't invent the the word. <laughs> I have to see this done. I I I guess I've only envisioned it 
happening? Like, what does the glue application look like? But because of the amount of glue, I mean, you're, you're talking about like a massive glue gun and a glue shoe or nozzle. Like it's coming down from an industrial vat. Check out Fraunhofer's um, uh, YouTube because they do actually, because wind turbine manufacturers are really secretive about everything, even something as low tech as a glue shoe. Um, they wouldn't, you know, necessarily let you in there. Uh, they definitely wouldn't let you in there to see that. I, I can guarantee you, you're, you're you're not getting you're not getting in there, Alan. Sorry. It's smart on their on their side, yeah. Suppliers weren't even allowed in unless, like, they absolutely were needed to go in there to solve a critical problem. Um, so you're not going to be allowed in. But the really cool thing about Fraunhofer is that they're not they're not a manufacturer. And so, you know, they're a research organization and they, they do share quite openly and they have some videos up of the um, manufacturing process and including one where you can um, see the two clamshells closing. All right. Pacific Core is moving forward with a study on painting wind turbine blades black to reduce wind, wind collisions with birds. The study involves painting a single blade on 36 turbines at Pacific Corp's Glenrock, Wyoming facility. 28 blades have been painted so far, with eight more to be done this year. Uh, partners include DOE, USGS, uh, Oregon State University, you know, and a number of other companies in Venergy and Nextera on the operator side. The study will uh, look at the effects on eagles and other birds, including bats. Now, this whole uh, emphasis on painting a blade black, I think, started in Norway, Rosemary. Does that sound right? where they did a trial and thought there may be some benefit to it. So they're trialing it again. I think I've seen three or four different trials of this. Is there just research that it works, or is this something that has to be trialed site by site by site to determine if it works? I actually thought, so there was some research done about 20 years ago that first suggested this as um, a simple way that might um, help birds out related to wind turbines. And then later on, they actually did a, a study. Uh, but it was, I think it was an island in Norway with a specific type of bird population that had a specific issue with um, wind turbines. And they did a small small trial there where they just went to some existing wind turbines, got up on ropes, painted uh, a, one blade on each turbine black and looked at the results. And it was um, pretty promising, but also a small trial. Um, and then at the time that I finished the video that I made on wind turbines and birds, there was another trial that was planned um, by RWE in the Netherlands, I'm pretty sure. And they were going to do a slightly larger trial. And I haven't seen the results of that, but I think it's underway. Obviously, it takes a few years to get, um, you know, all the data that you would need because you, <laughs> you need enough time to have had some birds die on your control turbines and hopefully not die on your um your treated wind turbines um and then yeah this is another one another study now that is um even larger it's getting rolled out people love this idea people mention it to me all the time about you know this um great thing you can just stop wind turbine deaths um bird deaths from wind turbines by painting one blade black and so why doesn't everyone do it um and i mentioned in my video there's some you know like technology reasons manufacturing reasons why you might not it's not actually that easy to just paint one blade black and still end up with all your blades um in a matching set and also a black blade is probably going to heat up more in the sun which will affect its um, stiffness and so then you know you might have some some issues so i mean none of those are probably 
like really um unsolvable challenges i would say but it i think it's the reason why it sounds like just such an easy thing like why wouldn't you do it even if it does nothing it's no big deal and it, it's a bit of a deal it's it's some kind of deal but the other thing i actually spoke to the researcher who did the the main paper that people refer to his name's Roll may and he's a i can't remember his exact <laughs> the exact type of scientist he is but he's, he's a, a bird guy maybe an ecologist or something like that he's not not a wind turbine engineer um, and so he gave some really interesting perspectives on, um, yeah, on the research that he did and his thoughts about the potential for the technology. And the main thing that I learned from him was that um, when you're talking about ecology, you can't just say this worked on one site, therefore it's going to be good for birds in every site everywhere in the world because there's different kinds of birds. They have different flight patterns, different nesting patterns, different vision um or everything like that um and yeah and there's differences between the sites as well you know there might be difference in i don't know the the color of the background or uh, I, i'm just you know imagining reasons here but you know every site isn't the same and so he said it's, it's really not possible to just say um we have qualified this technology and now you can roll it out everywhere and be confident that you're helping birds. You might actually have in some cases perverse outcomes where birds were attracted to it or, you know, something like that. And so that, yeah, that was from speaking to him, that was the the main thing that I learned about the, the challenge to roll it out. But it definitely is uh, enough of a, like it, it is a simple enough technology that if it did have, as big an impact as the initial study suggested, then it does make sense to look into it more. But um, I don't think that it's ever going to just be a matter of, okay, now we paint one blade black and now no bird was ever killed by a wind turbine. It's it's never going to be that straightforward. This one makes sense to me though, th that it's in Wyoming and Oregon. And the reason I say that is, is from the, my, my oil and gas past, I did a lot of work up there on BLM land, BLM land, Bureau of Land Management's all federal stuff. Where and and you, the key ones here partners include the USGS and US, basically Forest Service, right? So you have the the US federal uh, fish and game people and a lot of others involved. Up in those areas, you have a lot of times like a raptor nest. Like when they find a raptor nest, which is any kind of eagle, owl, anything like that, they will put mile radius exclusion zones around that that you can't go in at certain times of the year, even to the point where it's like um uh sage grouse out there they have little reflectors that are the size of like the tip of your pen on the fence lines every 10 feet for miles across the wyoming countryside so otherwise those sage grouse will fly into the fence and kill themselves but this is these are the kind of things that happen out there right so they're really looking for um and and to be honest with you central oregon and central wyoming while they're 800 miles apart they're almost identical in the species that live there and the the background of the you know like you're kind of saying rosemary i don't we don't know if that's metadata that is useful but what the terrain looks like so i can see that they have some stakeholders involved here and the doe from the federal government um trying to help on those those federal lands that are concentrated in wyoming oregon and out in the western part of the united states that's going to do it for this week's Uptime Wind Energy podcast. Thanks for listening. Please give us a five-star rating on your podcast platform and subscribe in the show notes below to Uptime Tech News, our weekly newsletter. And check out Rosemary's YouTube channel, Engineering with Rosie. And we'll see you here next week on the Uptime Wind Energy podcast. Oh.